Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you are about to hear was the fourth in a series of lessons presented to the Franklin Congregation in January of 2009 by Harold Comer. Brother Comer agreed to work with us as we strive to make 2009 our biggest year of growth ever. In this lesson, he explained the kinds of verbal and nonverbal messages guests receive when they attend our assemblies and classes. This is important because our prospects with the greatest potential are those who are checking us out. So, open your Bible and get ready to learn about what our guests see when they visit with us. Thank you for coming this evening. Thank you for your being out on a cold winter day. And uh, thank you for your interest. I appreciate the opportunity of talking about some of these spiritual things that are so important. I feel like this is one of those areas that you are a good example to churches around you. And yet there are a great number of things to learn and a great number of uh, outlooks that make it more effective if we just consider some of those. I call this welcoming urban visitors. And the emphasis upon how urban people think, why they're different, we've talked about some of those characteristics and some of those situations. Really, it's welcoming somebody who's very busy, very hurried, comes popping in here with a very tentative spirit about what's going on when he first comes or she first comes, an uncertainty about whether or not he wants to be here, and a skepticism about who we are and what we are because they don't know much and they hear some negative. And so we, we have a very different kind of visitor that comes in and that demands a, an understanding on our part and a response in a lot of different ways. In the world of 75 years ago, the people would have known what all went on in the Church of Christ. They would have known what all went on in the Baptist Church, and the Methodist Church, and even the Holy Rollers down the road because they had visited and been around and talked about it. Today, with so many different churches and so many different names, they don't begin to know what kind of people we are. They come because they like something in the life of a Christian. And they come because they have a need. And so I want you to see that tentative quality that's in the mind of everyone who makes that great effort to leave home and come out with a bunch of people that he doesn't know very well. Our job is to give them warm welcome, to respond to them, really to tell them we love them and that they are important to us and that they could find acceptance here. The question is, are those really valid methods, messages that God wants us to give? Are they scriptural? Is it right to say we love you? So does God. Is it right to say we're doing something very important here, and we think that it has great meaning and great value? Is it valid to say that whoever you are, that whatever your background, that if you will turn to God, that there is a growth process involved and you can be accepted here. When 
You think about the kind of negative messages, though, that are, are given. There surely are a lot of those that, that we see around us. For example, there are people that have gone into the fairly uh, righteous churches but have not learned how to respond in the application of biblical commandments. And so these messages are what people hear. We are here uh, to talk to our friends, don't bother us. And you can see that. Now, I appreciate what I saw in y'all, that y'all were moving around and moving to the visitors. Some places you go, they're saying, what we're doing is not very important to us. They have a very casual worship, and they have an indifference to, to the, the importance of it, and that gives a message to the person that's looking for something important and making the effort to try to find it. You are going to be accepted slowly in most American churches. And if we give the message where you could be accepted eventually, there's a general rule in churches it takes seven years to break in to the not the the power circle, but just sort of the the uh, core ring that's there. This uh, church is our church, and it's here for us, not for everyone, is a message that people have often been given. The problem with those kinds of messages is that sometimes they're not spoken, but they are very easy to hear, and they're very valid. There are two types of messages, a verbal and a nonverbal. And those are presented by our facilities, they're presented by what kind of actions and how we do them in our activities that are there. question is, would God even be concerned if he wrote the Bible and he expects us to read it and know it? Would he even be concerned about the nonverbal messages that we sometimes give and whether or not we pay attention to those? First John 3, verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed or truth. Are there any words there that describe verbals or nonverbals? There's the verbal messages in love, uh, love in word and in tongue. And there are some churches that have learned a very fine speech. We're glad you're here. It's great to have you. And that message ought to be given. But the question is, is that the important message, or is that all? There's also the nonverbal message that is talked about in this passage. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What you do it gives a message of love and is true to what really is there. There are other examples of this. One of the things that is sometimes there is that there are nonverbal messages given in some of the things we say. In James 2, uh, the picture of how we treat the man that comes in, we talked about Sunday, there are nonverbal messages that are wrapped up in words. Or if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And 
you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, the message that's there is not where do you find a place to sit or how could you be there to hear the sermon, but it's what we think about you and how we feel about you. There are many things that we don't think about that the visitors clearly hear. And we've got to be able to read uh, the, the situation around us or at least to hear the messages that are involved in that. Maybe something as simple as the condition of the grounds. And I appreciate the fact you work at your grounds. It's worth the effort. It's worth doing a good job with that. Because all of us get a message when we pass a church building and the grass has grown up about 18 inches and it is a clear message about what they think about what they're doing. They give a message to the first time visitor. There's also a message when uh, we don't want to spend the money because parking lots are pretty expensive. Church growth people tell you that parking is the second most limiting feature in all American churches because we're driving more cars, we're not paying attention to it, there is an expense involved, and the general rule in business is when your parking lot gets 80% full, you need to go and start making arrangements for adding on to the parking lot because you can't wait till you get two or three spots that are open and think that uh, you're not giving a message to someone that pulls into the lot because visitors come in late that uh, this church is already full and that they're uh, isn't a, a place to go. They have to be highly motivated to park in the aisle or block somebody else. Poorly conducted worship services are a message that we don't think they're important and that we're here, we're going to go through the routine that they give a very negative message. And most people today are in an awful lot of meetings. And in a meeting... How long does it take you to consider that this is an important meeting or a good meeting? Within five minutes, almost all of us decide whether we are glad we came or we're sorry we came. And it is the way the meeting is conducted, the kind of effort that is put into starting, and the way the organization that has been there in a poorly conducted worship service says that, this is not important to us. You need to be able to hear the messages. You need to learn how loud they really are. The verbal messages are also important, that there are a number of those kinds of messages that we ought to be given. First Corinthians, the 14th chapter, verse 23, talks about verbal messages that go on in the church at Corinth. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, 
That means they don't know the language and they don't know if it's a miracle or not. So they're uninformed in the languages that they might be hearing or they're unbelievers. Will they not say that you're out of your mind? The message that's given when we make the wrong choice, even if it is a spiritual action, even if it were speaking in tongues, which God has obviously energized and approved, it still was out of place in reference to the visitor that comes in. Occasionally I'll have a brother who will say, well, Brother Comer, I don't think we ought to change God's worship for people that walk in here, just the visitor. I think we ought to do what we're going to do. And that just ignores the impact of 1 Corinthians 14, where we need to understand what the effect is. Even if it's a godly act, there may be godly acts that are more properly carried out in other places and in other ways. And there are even verbal messages that are are harmful. When you start out and you review the urban messages, look at what's going on. This is a good list for every preacher, for every Bible class teacher, for everyone that makes announcements. And that is when you start to consider what's really going on. In the first place, it is what did you say? They're the words. And the words have a place, but they're not as important as we tend to make them. Uh, so what did you say? And then the question is, how did you say it? You can say words that technically, by the dictionary, have a propriety, but I'll tell you about that. See, you can say them in the wrong way. And you say in a way that cuts, or you know that you've got to speak with authority and clearly, but you take the wrong tone because you think that's the authority tone. And it is closing the door, or it's disturbing, or just how did you say it? And that doesn't mean everything ought to be soft. But it means that you've got to pay attention to how you say it. Then what did they hear? Sometimes, often, many times, what the person hears is not what I thought I was saying. And it's more important to understand what he hears than what I wanted to do or what I wanted to accomplish. If I'm not accomplishing it, if he didn't hear that, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's the speaker system, Maybe it's the tone, maybe it's the language, whatever. What's important is what he hears. And out of that, what did they conclude? Sometimes you can give a misleading conclusion in their life from tone or character or the way you set up the point or the way you presented the point. So it's What they concluded is more important than what you said. Because that's what you want the result to be in. How did they act because of that? If what you say needs to get results, then 
the conclusion they make and the action that they take is what you want. And if you can say something that causes a man to feel the crush of sin and step out and come forward to be a Christian, that's a, a great re, re act and a great result. And yet we continually can close the door. I see how many times I've over-preached the, the invitation and had a, a good point, but I just kept on preaching it to death and I didn't get any action. So how they act is the, the major result that you're preaching for anyway. Those verbal messages are given in a lot of different ways. They're giving when the important ones are when we open. They need to be quick. They need to be warm. They need to get our minds focused on worship. The call to worship, the call to what we're doing, the announcements uh, need to consider other ways that family information flows. And when we develop a visitor flow, the announcements on Sunday morning may be very different from the announcements on Wednesday night because we've got to consider what five minutes at the beginning of the service is going to do to the visitor when he will, will not know any one of the people that we're talking about. The worship services uh, need to be observed and the messages considered, the classes, the sermons, and the private comments afterwards that it's terrible to stab a soul that the gospel has helped, but we make the wrong comments later. There surely are negative messages that are there, and occasionally they're given sometimes more than just occasionally. For example, you can say this isn't important by the way you fiddle around during the worship service, by the attitude you have when you come in. You can say, I'm not interested in this. Ah, I can't believe he's preaching on that again. You know, you don't have to say the words. You just roll your eyes. The the messages have an effect. The Lord is far off. In other words, you don't hear much about the Lord. You don't hear much about uh, the interaction with Him and the prayers or whatever. And the question, if they're not bothering with this, why should we bother with it, is the message. Uh, if there's a lesson on singing and it doesn't do anything, uh, we are a little put off by that, and maybe there were some comments that were a little too strong or a little off base, and we don't sing, then that's a message to the visitor that uh, why, why should we pay attention to all of those comments? Some problems are going on here is one conclusion that people make. When they see people pass Brethren, and there's obviously some barriers or differences that you can read, even though you don't know any of the people are involved. There's a conclusion that these people will not make it. And that's a pretty serious conclusion, because if anybody's going to come here and stick with you, they've got to believe that you've got a future, 
that you've got a future, that things are going to be better, and that you're not sitting here and just uh, on a cake of ice, uh, not going anywhere, not accomplishing anything. If you're talking about the future, if you're talking about where you're going, if you see and feel all of those comments, when a young family comes in, where does a young family think? Do they think about the past? Do they think about their present? Do they evaluate the present? Would they think it was all that great? Are they thinking about the future? Young families think about the future. And they go to a church and all they can talk about is the past. Or just right now, and they're not going to win very many young families because their attention is not in the right place. The attention for young families and for college students and for uh, anyone that's starting their life and looking ahead, is what's, is this going to be like? Is it going to be worthwhile? Can we fit in here? And sometimes the mood is so negative or the mood is so casual or lethargic or whatever it is, the statement is, these people will not make it. And that's one of the, the reasons that you need to understand the role of the empty seats. There is a, a message of, of empty seats is there that's connected with the thought that they'll not make it. When you go into an auditorium and there are one and a half to two times as many empty seats as there are people, then what's that saying? Oh, I don't think they'll ever grow or these people will never make it, or these people are dying. These messages are heard a number of times, even in one service. And you can check yourself. Do you get messages from the auditorium when you go into a new place, in a strange place? Do you get a message if it's relatively filled and the people are closer together and the singing is better? Do you get the message that these are doing well, or if they're all scattered out and they're, they're, the singing is hurt because you can't hear anyone else because the distances are too great, do uh, you get the message that they're not going to make it, that there's something that, that's missing? You think about the message in an auditorium that's two-thirds empty. And so when you do that, you just rebalance the, the, the center and where the people are. And as they get a little closer together, the singing begins to improve. The feeling of the, the being apart and sharing in that and the commit, being committed to the group increases and the message changes to a very positive one. The visitor's conclusions are what's really important. How you do some things are beneficially judged by what does he conclude. If he thinks, why did I come? Have you ever gone to a meeting that you wonder why you came? Or sorry that you came? Uh, if we tell them nothing important's going on here, if we're too casual and too indifferent, uh, then we can say that nothing really is, is happening here. And that is all opposed 
to the messages we ought to give. For example, the message we ought to give is this means something to, to those people. Uh, meaning that it means something to us. And when they get that message and make that conclusion, that's a positive conclusion. Or when uh, it comes out that I need to worship Him also. When they see worship going on and they see the attention and and the, the effect on people and it's sort of a, a new thing to them, there's the conclusion, you know, I, I need that. And this is a place where I could find it and develop it. There are choices that come and actions that come from the conclusions that we make right now. And that's the object that we want to keep in mind and the objects that we want to push for. Well, will our nonverbals impress the visitors? What I'm talking what what are some examples of nonverbals? Well, I think reaching for a songbook. If the three people around me don't reach for a songbook, I'm not going to reach for one. If every one of them immediately grabs it and they're turning, or if it's on the screen, they're looking up and attending and singing, then that's an encouragement to every visitor. If people reach for a Bible, when the preacher gets up and says, we're going to be looking at John, the third chapter, uh, and the verses, and everybody gets their Bible out, and then the pew Bibles are there, then the visitor is much more ready to do that. The congregation that follows and turns uh, to the Bible has a real effect. Uh, if everyone is singing, that encourages them to try and see if they can fit in. If everyone's reaching for a Bible, if everyone's turning to the passage, that says these people really care. And you've been complimented on that, and I uh, commend you on that. But remember that even the visitors you've had have talked about it and observed it in the first time that they came and it may be that there are more scriptures on the screen. That's fine. It may be that there are lessons where it's not on the screen and you're using the Bible and the screen. Or if it's not there, then that you're using the Bible and turning to it. If there's an increasing interest that, that goes through the lesson, that is noticed by the visitor. If people are staying and talking, that's noticed. If there's warmth, that's noticed. If there's coolness, that's noticed also. All of those are the kinds of things that have an immediate effect in, in the observation of the visitor. Remember what the visitor's trying to do. He's trying to check it out and decide if you're genuine and what you really are all about. One of the things that is biblical in emphasizing all these values is the statements that are often made in Scripture about what you do that you do in a way that's worthy of the Lord. There are statements like Colossians, the first chapter in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So when we're about the kinds of things that God wants and doing it in a good way, it is not only pleasing to God, beneficial to us, but it also is beneficial to our visitors. Philippians 1.27 Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when you participate, pray about it, get up and do the best job you can, and you're not going to do as well as you're going to do later, because you're going to be growing from the effort that you put in to the things. The question about what is worthy and what does it amount to, is it worthy of the Lord when you're unprepared? And when the very first thing you say is, well, I've got to apologize to you. I didn't, uh, I got sort of busy today and I didn't have time to work on this lesson. And there's a lot better things that can be said about this and what I'm saying tonight. If you don't study, don't brag on it. I know you're not bragging. And I, I know that's cutting. But don't tell them about it. When If you didn't do it before this, get up and do the very best you can. Pray hard for what you're doing and for help. Poor preparation gives a very negative message and it doesn't need to be explored or publicized. There's an apparent lack of interest on the part of some members or on the part of some speakers or those that participate. And it has an effect and it's not worthy of the Lord. I know churches that understand that you've got to train people. We don't have to do as much as we used to. Men's training classes, you really had to do that just to begin to get up a flow of information. But... There are churches that have learned too much about that. And they do the training when the visitor's there. And it makes the visitor uh, think that that's what their standard is and that's what they like. And there are plenty of times to do the training. And there is the, the benefit of training, but not at the point that there are a number of visitors. What's the message of an inexperienced participant? at a key visitor time. Do the training. You've got Wednesday night. You've got other times. I, I've not had a men's training class in a long time. In a long, long time. And I've considered churches where I've been when I've just evaluated the speech abilities that were there that I may have been the 12th best speaker in the whole congregation. That there, that, that wouldn't have been that way years ago. The Best speaker was going to be the preacher. But now, there are all sorts of good speakers around. And all that says is that we need to read the situation and be careful about some of the excesses that some congregations go through in training inexperienced participants. One message of you can't sit here is the message that's given when you see somebody needing a seat and looking around and you just sit there 
and locked down. Or you're on the end of the row and they're trying to get in and you lock your arm down on the end of the, the pew and just make it clear that you're not going to move. You can't sit here or you've got to crawl over me if you're going to get in. They're discouraging messages in a lot of ways and none of that is worthy of the Lord. Well, you need to understand the importance of the first five minutes. That's the time that many people make their decision about where they're going to come back. Is it that way with you? Uh, when you go into a, a place that's strange and different, the, for the, the, the use of those first few minutes is important. There is a necessity that we appreciate that and we make use of those first five minutes. They normally come in, visitors come in after uh, it begins or right at the last minute. You sometimes can't do anything right before worship begins. But when they come in a couple of minutes ahead, then you can make use of those two minutes or even just 30 seconds to smile at them, to welcome them, and to speak to them. And you can surely do that when service is over. If you look at this audience, and you are far better than the, 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 the average congregation today about moving around and moving to the minister, but we always want to remember how important it is. And if you see the audience stand and turn and talk to a member, that's a destructive action. If you see them look around and look for someone to, that they don't know, and they go and walk to them and speak to them, there is a tremendous welcome in that, a tremendous benefit. There are a lot of things that give a warm welcome. The visitor's parking spot up close to the entrance, uh, multiple greetings from a lot of different people, the uh, other preparation that's made, obviously, for visitors, give a good warm welcome. And when you understand the visitor's normal conduct and you make allowance for that, that means seating in a comfortable area just when they first come in, they... They want to get out of the line of sight. They they just they just want to peek in first, and then they just want to check out the things that we do. Whatever we've got to learn to think like the visitor thinks if we're going to communicate to him. Now there are brethren that are strong. They they consider themselves strong, and they say some things like. Well, I'll tell you, Brother Comer, visitors are what they ought to be. It wouldn't make any difference if somebody neglected them or that they weren't paid special attention to. They'd be back the next services. They're what they ought to be. And I'll tell you, we just ought to have a standard in this congregation and expect people to be strong. Well, you know, when I hear that speech, you know what I say? I say, you know, I agree with you. I think that the visitors who are what they ought to be are going to act that way. But you see, you change the subject on me. 
Because what I've been talking about is I've been talking about people who are not what they ought to be. I've been talking about evangelism. I'm talking about people who just started to be interested. I'm talking about people who've not made their commitment and conclusion. And when we expect them to be strong, we're stressing swelling. See, that's not a convert. That, that's a transfer of an already converted member, a strong member. Their first-time visitor is not what he ought to be. And that we have to have the mindset that we want people who are not what they ought to be because that's the way we get them to where they ought to be. And that's the way that we change them. And there are some brethren that have too much self-righteousness in what they think about being strong. And they end up neglecting their evangelism, neglecting their love, neglecting their message to others, and neglecting the... The development. Now, we don't want them to remain that way. It is a terrible shame. I've had some relatives that never grew. They lived to be about 17 years of age, but they were in a baby bed all the time. And that's really a sad picture. When, when they're limited by the diseases or the afflictions or whatever, to go in and see a 17-year-old that's about three foot long with a diaper on and not learn to speak. We don't want brethren that are that way. We want them to grow, but they're going to grow at a normal rate. They're going to be converted with normal processes. It's going to take time, and it's going to take some serious effort and understanding on our part. The truth is, if we kill off our babes, we kill off the visitors, there's no way that we can grow in a scriptural way. And that's not a proof of our strength. It's a proof of our misconceptions that are there. Once we understand visitors are precious, and that they're rather highly motivated to walk in here, then some brethren relax and they say, well, they'll be back if they're that highly motivated. That's not how highly motivated they are. They are motivated simply to be here for that one visit. That one visit is our chance to give them the reason to come back. And if we don't give them the reason to come back, they're not going to be back. But there were 40 other things that they could be doing in this area on that Sunday that they walked in here. You think about how many recreational things and other activities that would go on on a Sunday morning, and they didn't do any of those things. They came in here to see what was going on with you. But you've got to give them the reason to come back. Now, why do they return? Well, they hear the Bible, and it was clear enough and simple enough that they want to return. They uh, received something from God's Word that helped them. There was something that was practical, something that was usable, something that was optimistic and beneficial that was going on there. They come back because they live in a cold and an empty world and a lot of their lives are empty. And God says we're to love them and love has its power. And when we love them, 
and they receive warmth and interest, it says that you could fit in here and you could be a part of this. They come back because they're touched by worship. That they've not been around that. They didn't realize that it meant that much. They come back because they think it will help their children. And that's one of the major motivations. And it's a good motivation. It's not a carnal motivation. And we have got... You get a visitor to come in and you're one of the, the spiritual heritage teachers... Take them to the classrooms and show them and, and let them see what all is there. The, a tour of the classrooms for somebody that's a young family is a pretty impressive kind of thing when they can explain what the, all the things that are on the wall really are. Some people are touched about their sin and they come back because they need their toes stepped on and they need to know about their sin. They understand that. They come back because they're impressed about simple New Testament worship and how important it is. They come back because they think they could improve here or they could grow or that they could learn. And that's one of the drives that's very, very important. The first impressions that are important is friendliness from everyone. And that means not... 15, 20 people that are, are talking to them. But that means people that smile at people they don't know. That when you see somebody you don't know, you look them in the eye. And you, you smile at them, take that kind of interest in them that gives some warmth, gives some comfort, and some help. The actions that I'm talking about are pretty simple. They start with just something like looking around, seeing who's there and what's there. You get up, you go to the visitor, you look him in the eye, and all you have to do is smile, reach out your hand, give your name, greet them warmly, and when they give you their name, use it three times. You remember a lot better. If you say, Tim, I really appreciate you coming, and I think you and Betty will uh, fit in really well here. Or, Jim, we, and, and you use it three times, then you tend to remember it later. Ask or talk about their home, their family, their work. There are a lot of things you ought not to ask about. You don't get a man and ask him, how early did he lose his hair? That's just, uh, there's some things you don't say. But you do, uh, can talk about family, you can talk about work, and you can talk about home. And send him a note, or now, if you've got email and you get his email, and an amazing number of people give us their email on the visitor's card, uh, you uh, send them a quick email that's warm, in brief, and it leaves a, a warm moment uh, that's there. Then when they come back, go to them, remember their name, and uh, welcome them back. Say something about their story, where they were, what you learned in the first one. If you find the real quiet one that just watches the baseboard, be sure and stand in their way and 
welcome them also because they're going to respond uh, and they're just shy. And so you're going to have to make some movement toward them. One of the important things is that you collect the information. Don't stick the visitor's card in your pocket and get it back about three weeks. You just lost the most important three weeks. You've got to collect it. It's got to be available. Uh, more people have got to know the information that has to be circulated in some way. You want the details, the contact information, but most of all, you want their story. You want to know who they are, what they are, the sort of where they come from. You'll remember their story quicker and more than you'll remember any of the details on the visitor's card. But you need both of those. When someone comes in, you can respond to your peer group, especially for the kids. I appreciate the young folks here. And if you'll be a, a welcomer to anybody that's your age, if you're a teenager, if you're in college, if you just go talk to them, that blows a mother or dad away. That Because what they're here for is they want somebody with that will be a good influence on their kids. And when each peer group understands that and responds, then that's a, a powerful motivation and a powerful argument. One of the peer groups with the families with kids, another is the females that are present. You need to understand how valuable a female is to this whole process. She'll get more information. She'll be able to read the nonverbals and not offend the visitor. Who can talk to a woman visitor better, men or women? And there's sometimes that all you get is a bunch of men talking to her and something seriously is missing. Who's a better communicator, men or women? Women can read the nonverbals and talk to them. Therefore, should women make an effort? Should we energize them to meet the visitor and talk to them? Who's the most perceptive about feelings, men or women? Women in all those cases, and therefore... Should godly ladies work at welcoming visitors? And they really should. They are needed and they add a very special element in all that's there. The prospects is to be monitored weekly. You've got to read their interest accurately. You've got to know what's going on. You've got to develop relationships uh, that will help them watch you and decide if you're genuine. That's the, one of their chief purposes. It's a very godly kind of action. And you've got to make yourself available to them and talking to them so that they can carefully examine and raise their questions. So you move from warmth by being warm to them when they first come to a conversation when they're a little relaxed to a non-intrusive association, something that doesn't threaten them too much. It can be uh, something that doesn't have some kind of social responsibility or obligation to them, to a religious conversation. And sometimes it takes three months or longer 
before some people will allow a religious conversation. Once you get a religious conversation, that's a good sign. That's not ready, meaning that they're always ready for a study. But if you can move the conversation more solidly into something that's religious and biblically oriented, then you can study the needed lessons. They're there. And so you, you learn to go slow. You learn to develop the, the relationship. And the reason for that is that they, that's a part of being an urban visitor. That you don't know uh, what you're getting into and you build your relationships very slowly. The studies are shorter and quicker, and they are where we're going. Conversion takes place with the Bible. Well, what all of that suggests is that there are a lot of things to think about. There are a lot of things to learn. None of them are terribly difficult skills, but they all come from a warm heart, that cares, and a heart that prays for wisdom, and a heart that understands that we're not dealing with people in the 1930s. We're dealing with people in a very large, hurried city that have real needs deep down inside, and there is a slow process that they go through to decide where they're going with their life. I hope you were edified by this lesson. Most of all, I hope God was glorified. At the Franklin Church, we take God's directive to spread his gospel seriously, and we don't want to miss one single opportunity to get his word out. We hope you share this goal. If you have any questions about this lesson, any spiritual needs, or any prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. We would love for you to attend one of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and meeting times on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We look forward to meeting you. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.